the National Archives podcast series, highlights from the October 2015 release of files from the Security Service, Foreign Office and Cabinet Office. Stephen Twigg, Head of Modern Collections at the National Archives, in conversation with Professor Christopher Andrew, former official historian of MI5 and author of The Defence of the Realm, The Authorised History of MI5, and Jill Bennett, former Chief Historian of the Foreign and Commonwealth Office. The majority of this collection covers the 1950s and focus on the Cold War investigations that revealed Guy Burgess and Donald McLean to be part of the Cambridge spy ring. Having both the MI5 and FCO files and Burgess and McLean in this collection provides us with a unique standpoint of being able to see all sides of the story relating to the identification of Burgess and McLean, the Soviet agents, and their disappearance. I am joined here today by Christopher Andrew, former official historian of MI5, and Jill Bennett, former chief historian of the Foreign and Commonwealth Office, who will be discussing one of the most famous spy cases in history, along with some other highlights from this collection. So, Christopher, who starts with you, uh, what do the MI5 files in this collection reveal about how they came to identify Burgess and McLean as Soviet agents in the first place? Well, what the MI5 files reveal is that they identified Burgess and McLean in entirely different ways. Burgess, until he fled to Moscow, they had the slightest idea that he was a Soviet spy or could be a Soviet spy. Anybody who behaved as outrageously as he did, the idea that the KGB would even consider him uh, was absurd. So amongst the material on file, for example, is the fact that a complaint uh, from the MI5 representative in Gibraltar, uh, that while he was in Gibraltar, He had drunk more hard liquor than he had ever seen anybody drink, even in Gibraltar. Now, in the case of McLean, it's entirely different. It was the first great success of British and American code breakers after World War II. They had identified McLean as a Soviet agent codenamed Homer. And they saw him meeting Burgess. But that was suspicious not for Burgess or even for McLean, because Burgess had been sent back in disgrace from Moscow, where he'd been in the embassy. And Burgess, they assumed, was seeing McLean because he was afraid of losing his job in Washington. Um, So it wasn't until they both left that it even occurred to British authorities uh, that they were meeting, in fact, to discuss their escape. This is the Venona material that people are aware of, isn't it? Which was, I think, called something different in Britain, wasn't it? The the Venona uh, material was uh, a continuation of wartime cooperation between British and American codebreakers. The difference is this, that during the Second World War, it was British codebreakers, particularly at Bletchley Park, who take the lead. After the Second World War, the Americans have considerably more resources, and they take the lead. Uh, And the man who makes the crucial breakthroughs about uh, uh, Agent Homer uh, is a codebreaker of genius, who I had the good fortune to to meet, uh, called Meredith Gardner. But uh, as the files that are just released explained, everything that was discovered from uh, Venona and uh, other broken ciphers after the Second World War, under the terms of the post-war agreement, had to be shared between Britain uh, and the United States. So the discovery of McLean is as much an American success as it is British success. 
Thank you. Uh, Jill, uh, turning to you. Uh, there are a large number of Foreign Office files in this collection. Uh, what insights do these files provide about the character and circumstances relating to the disappearance? Well, as you might expect, and particularly in the light of what uh, Chris just said, the Foreign Office files are much more concerned with the aftermath of the, di- the disappearance of Burgess and Maclean rather than what went before, although there are references to the investigation uh, and those files dovetail very well with the MI5 files. But it was a complete surprise. They were they had been intending to interrogate McLean. He had been identified, as we've heard. But um, the the interrogation had been scheduled for a couple of weeks after he actually disappeared. So he was under suspicion. Burgess, as we've heard, was not under suspicion at all, although he had behaved in his usual egregious manner. Um, But all of a sudden, they're gone. Nobody was expecting them to actually disappear, especially Burgess. So if you can imagine two members of the Foreign Office disappear and nobody knows where they've gone, uh, it is really that which is the preoccupation of these files. And in addition to that, a question of dealing with the Americans, because although it is absolutely true that there was a close signals intelligence relationship between the two, there was also a good deal of tension in some parts of the relationship over American concerns about the level of British security and the possible fallout from the disappearance of McLean, in particular, who'd been a senior uh, diplomat in in the embassy in Washington, uh, gave the Foreign Office a good deal to think about. How are they going to handle this? Uh, And, you know, different parts of the American administration, not all of whom talked to one another, how were you going to explain it to them? And how, what we today we would call media handling. They didn't call it then, but they did, uh, they did uh, call it, um, they did mean they had to do that. Yes, there's, uh, we've talked about Burgess and McLean, but there's one other character that appears in these files, and that's Kim Philby. So we could ask both Jill and Christa, but what do these files tell us about Kim Philby's role in these uh, events? What they reveal is the beginning of the end of Kim Philby's career as probably the most successful Soviet spy ever to penetrate uh, the British official bureaucracy. And uh, what brought it to an end, of course, was the fact that uh, when Burgess, the misbehaving Burgess, was stationed at the Washington Embassy from 1950 to 1951. He was actually staying with Kim Philby. Now, I think we can deduce now, though not from the files, but material that came out from KGB files, this was very convenient for Philby uh, because he wasn't going to be run from the KGB residence at the KGB station in Washington because there had been a series of internal scandals which led to the recall of two heads of station. Now, he was run uh, by somebody who was actually at New York uh, University, um, operating as a musicologist. Uh, his real name was uh, Valery Makayev, and uh, his codename was, was Harry. So what Burgess was able to do at weekends when he was uh, pretending to go off to New York to have a good time was actually to act as courier between the two. Anyway, when Burgess as well as McLean flee to Moscow, Philby has got a good deal of explanation to do, and he writes, and it's amongst the documents that uh, are released in the, uh, his MI5 file, 
he explains that he'd had this dilemma. Now, be a problem having Burgess to stay with him, because Burgess was pretty badly behaved. On the other hand, if he refused to have Burgess to stay with him, he went to live by himself. Just imagine the scandal that might result. So it was the best he could do, and it didn't convince the CIA at all. The CIA insisted that Phil be, uh, be recalled. MI6 continued to stand by him. But his full-time career as an intelligence officer, who just conceivably might have gone on to be the head of MI6, is over. Mm. There's certainly some... Uh uncertainty within the files, especially regarding MI6, about whether he was a Soviet agent. We have this wonderful letter from C, basically exonerating him. And uh, the fact that Burgess's house was part of this cover, uh, he can't possibly have been an agent. What do you say to that? Uh, Well, he was um, tremendously well uh, trusted. He was one of the biggest um, high flyers. His social skills were enormous. Uh, And to oversimplify, When he comes back in disgrace, so far as the Americans are concerned, uh, most people in MI6, uh, including the chief, stand by him. And most people who have a look at the case in MI5 believe that he's guilty. And that takes some years uh, to resolve all that. Okay. One uh, relationship that's common to all of these is Cambridge, obviously. There are some files that have been released on uh, early activities in, in Cambridge. What does this tell us about... What was the environment at Cambridge University during this period, the early 30s? Well, I think one fabulously interesting document for looking at uh, not simply the Burgess, McLean, Philby and other cases, uh, but for the history of uh, the left, and in particular the socialist left in Cambridge between the wars, are that one of the documents uh, that has been uh, released is the minute book of what had been the um, uh, Cambridge Labour Club and what becomes the Cambridge University Socialist Society. And, of course, the stalwarts of that society, despite its name, it was actually communist-dominated. They include uh, Kim Philby, they include Burgess, and they include McLean. So we see, for example, it was obviously a pretty riotous evening. Uh, McLean, at the beginning of the 1930s, 1931, I think, is put in charge of publicity. And they have a very jolly evening when they believe for the first time in Cambridge the Internationale uh, and other um, uh, 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 red songs are sung in, in Cambridge. And then, you know, uh, Philby, he is, uh, he's made the treasurer. And his links uh, with this organisation are so close that he remains in touch even after he moves from Cambridge, after his graduation in uh, 1933, and ends up um, helping the, uh, the communist underground in Austria. And he sends back to uh, the CUSS an appeal for funds. And one of the two people who is put in charge of obtaining funds to send back to oppressed Austrian workers is Guy Burgess. The general context as well at the time, uh, not just uh, in Cambridge, as we've just heard about, but if you're talking about the 50s, uh, the early 50s and the late 40s, the number of people who are moving around in these circles is comparatively restricted. And so you find from both the Foreign Office files and from the MI5 files, Burgess, in particular, very well-connected person. Everybody knew everybody. A lot of them had been at school together. They 
a lot of them had been at university together, even if they were not in any way linked by Russian intelligence. A lot of them were the members of the same clubs. They frequented the same dinner parties. This goes a long way to explaining why uh, allowances are made, even for, in Burgess's case, spectacularly bad behaviour. And indeed in Maclean's, it's quite interesting that in the... Uh, I mean, it's some papers that when Churchill, for example, is told about uh, all this after the, the disappearance of Burgess and Maclean, he says, well, you know, what... What is all this? You know, when Maclean had had a, you know, a bad time in Cairo and had trashed somebody's flat and hurt his wife and fallen downstairs, all these things, why wasn't it picked up? Well, you know, they, if people are performing their jobs well, which on the whole Maclean was, Burgess was much less reliable, and Philby always was performing his job well. It takes a great deal for people who have known these people and worked with them for a long time to accept a suspicion. And indeed, just going back to Philby for a moment, one of the documents which appears in both the MI5 file and the Foreign Office file, which struck me, was a a minute written by Philby where he is still in Washington, um, deflecting uh, suspicion. It's a kind of by saying... He's saying, I don't think you should only look at, uh, at, at low-grade people. I think you should look at more senior-grade people, which in a way you might think is a self-incriminating thing. But the way he writes it, it is really a double bluff. He is trying to deflect suspicion. It's true it's the beginning of the end for him, but I think he's still uh, in pretty good form and still hope to get away from it. Yeah. See, what was not realised when these files were written is how the KGB was handling all all these people. Now, years afterwards, uh, MI5 uh, discovered from, uh, amongst uh, other people, uh, extraordinary British agents who had been working inside the KGB, Oleg Godievsky and Vasily Batrokhin, who brought a phenomenal amount of material out of KGB files. So... What MI5 overestimated at the time and uh, what um, British government overestimated at the time was how well the KGB was handling these people. It was actually handling them terribly. So Jill has just referred to the absolutely amazing bad uh, behaviour, although, as she said, outside of work time, (laughs) in uh, Cairo in 1950. This is an extraordinary occasion. Uh, He sort of boasted about it in, in private. He goes into this um, uh, American female diplomat's flat. There's a large mirror, and he hurls it into the bath, and then I can't believe what happens, because the bath breaks, but the uh, the, the mirror re- remains intact. Mm-hmm. Now, after this and other episodes, uh, he writes, and MI5 discovered this much later, to um, the KGB, um, sending the latest lot of intelligence. He sends private letters saying, I'm under such strain. I really can't carry on. They ignore it. They do nothing about it. So far as Philby is uh, is concerned, again, the belief is in these files that Philby is being handled in a rather sophisticated way by the KGB. Not at all. Um, Harry, his, his um, uh, case uh, officer, loses money that he's supposed to uh, send to Philby, loses instructions on what he's to do after Burgess uh, has left, uh, and is later summoned back to Moscow. Uh, a considerable amount of money has gone missing from KGB funds uh, in uh, New York, and the, uh, uh, the man is, is, is sacked. So 
one of the lessons, I think, of uh, all of this is that when you're dealing with uh, uh, a really powerful opponent like the, the, the KGB, the danger of actually overestimating how efficient they were. Mm. So much of what Burgess did, so much of what um, McLean did, so much of what uh, Philby did was achieved despite and not because of the way they were run by the KGB. I think there's two real lessons here in, from uh, building on what Chris says of, from the papers. One is that, of course, you always have to remember um, what people knew then and what people thought then and the different times and the different kind of norms, uh, societal norms that were going on. But I think there's no doubt, and the Foreign Office files bring this out particularly, that security, um, British security, was... Uh, the Foreign Office was very lax and indeed the systems that later were developed for vetting and so on were very, very undeveloped at this stage and so there were an awful lot of things that just wouldn't have come up. I mean, there's a a minute by... um, by Herbert Morrison uh, when he's then Foreign Secretary saying well you know we don't want the kind of spying on our, we don't want to detract from morale by appearing to um, pry into our officers' private lives and so on. Now, to us now, this seems completely uh, odd. But at the time, that's how it was. But there's no doubt that the Foreign Office Security Department, many of whose files these actually are, um, were really pretty inept uh, and missed an awful lot of chances, even without hindsight, of picking up on some of the clues that were laid before them. Jill is absolutely right. It's worth remembering that when McLean joined the Foreign Office before World War II, not merely was there not a security department, there wasn't even a security officer. (laughs) Some of these files are quite fascinating in that they contain letters from members of the public offering advice where they may have been cited and various other people claiming to be clairvoyants which could possibly help. I'm afraid it's fairly common, and and in particular um, throughout Foreign Office files, whenever there's any question of um, some kind of, uh, especially with involving spies, but any kind of potential scandal, you always see hundreds and hundreds of letters from people who think that it's their duty to, um, you know, set them set the top of the Foreign Office straight and explain how actually, if only they'd been consulted, they could have told them all about it. I think it's really not significant in terms of the case itself. Mm. I think that's uh, absolutely right. This is the case. I mean, in normal criminal investigations, help from the public is absolutely essential and hastens it. In this particular case, help from the public uh, was completely misguided and actually held up. Mm-hmm. The, the investigation of uh, of the case. What I think is interesting is uh, is that when uh, uh, Burgess McLean finally turn up in Moscow and everyone knows uh, where they are, um, uh, that uh, in Burgess's uh, correspondence in particular, uh, there are um, a few uh, notes of disapproval uh, from members of the British public. Most are actually pretty friendly to him, but um, the Royal National Lifeboat Institution, for example he sends a contribution to. And the Royal and National Lifeboat Institution replies, we do not accept money from traitors. When they fetch up in Moscow, and there's concern that they might come back to Britain, there's actually little evidence they could produce in court to actually uh, put them away. There's great worry about what That's they right. would actually and do. That's right, particularly Burgess. I mean, the Attorney General says quite specifically, we have got, we do not have evidence with which we could prosecute him. 
uh, McLean, I think they had rather, because after all, they were about to interrogate McLean when he left. Um, but they are worried at various points that they might come back. I think it actually um, it, it, it was, in a way, a very needless worry because I don't think the Russians would have let them out, <laughs> no. but that's a different matter. But they are, they do get an arrest warrant in 1962 drawn up just in case. Um, I think largely because they feel there'll be a public expectation of it. Mm. I don't actually think um, that they really expected them uh, to come back there, they were slightly yeah. worried about it, but in fact, I think it was a. And this was the Venona material which couldn't be produced in court. Well, uh, what the KGB does is miss a huge trick. I mean, they were such a bureaucratic organization, they couldn't have done it. But Burgess wanted to come back to Britain. He wanted to see his mother, he wanted to see his tailor, he wanted to see his friends, wanted to see a lot of people. If they'd let him come back, um, they were, he could never have been prosecuted successfully. So, there would have been Burgess, um, uh, larger than life, and he was never anything other than <laughs> larger than life, wandering um, uh, round London, uh, the best-known spy in British history, and uh, no case could have been brought against him. But for the KGB to have seen that opportunity, they would have had to be a lot cleverer and less bureaucratic. Than and they, they would have been worried about what else he could reveal. Exactly. Uh, because, after all, um, we never know whether... Everybody has been identified from these um, various allegations about spying. It's never been entirely clear uh, who else might have been involved, I mean, apart from the ones that we know about. Um, so it may have been that they were worried about further revelations, mm. even ones we can't even guess at. We do get a file relating to Cairn Cross and others, don't they? They sort of pop up in, mm. in and out of these investigations. But you also get people which were drawn into the net, which were later exonerated. Well, it is amazing how many people forgot after Burgess defected that he'd been a friend of theirs. <laughs> <laughs> and yet he still received, and that's in, in the security service files, isn't it, Chris? They yeah. re he received a great deal of correspondence from people who had been friends of him, who continued to write to him warmly. Well, there's, there's one wonderful example, I think, well, more than one wonderful example in uh, National Archive files uh, from uh, both uh, Burgess and uh, also from Sir Michael Redgrave's files. Now, the, uh, the great actor Sir Michael Redgrave files was released uh, a year or two ago here. And uh, there's an account of uh, uh, when he went to Moscow to play Hamlet um, Burgess turned up in, um, in his room. Uh, Burgess gives an account of that um, when he writes to his mother, and Michael Redgrave gives an account of that, and it's identical except for one embarrassing particular, that Michael Redgrave reveals that the first thing that uh, Burgess did when he walked into his room was to throw up into a hand <laughs> basin. <laughs> That's marvellous, isn't it? We've also got... In addition to these files, um, other uh, mysterious uh, circumstances of the Cold War. One of these is the disappearance of Commander Crabbe. Uh, I don't know if you'd like to throw any uh, yes, light well, on that one. Yes, um, well, in addition to the Security Service and Foreign Office release, we are on this occasion releasing the second tranche of the Cabinet Secretary's miscellaneous papers, um, which are the, the, the private and secret Cabinet Office Cabinet Secretary's papers, the first tranche of which was released in May 2013. The new tranche runs from 91, uh, 1951 to 1960. It's not a hugely eventful tranche of papers, I must say, but it does have 
a file on Burgesser Maclean, and it has some really quite substantial files on the Bruster Crab affair. It was a very serious affair um, for the Secret Intelligence Service because um, Crab had been engaged in an operation set up by Naval Intelligence and SIS to dive in Portsmouth Harbour to look at some Russian ships um, which were then moored there, and he didn't come back up. Uh, and the whole thing was a tremendous scandal, not least because of the very inept way it was handled by SIS and the fury of the Prime Minister at the time, Anthony Eden, who had given specific instructions that there were to be no intelligence, hostile intelligence activities mounted against their Russian visitors. Uh, and SIS and Naval Intelligence thought that that didn't apply, uh, apply to them. And these papers show uh, why that was there, because they contain all the witness statements of the people who were called up in the Bridges inquiry by uh, Sir Edward Bridges into what went wrong. Uh, so, for example, you get the Permanent Secretary of uh, the Admiralty and the Permanent Secretary of the Foreign Office each being asked why didn't you tell your minister um, that, about what had happened and the fact that Crabbe had gone missing and each of them said I thought he was going to do it mm-hmm. uh, and that's just a small example um, it was a notorious uh, case with um, a great deal of press coverage now it's not new uh, the, the facts of Crabbe's, the Crab story have been out for some time but these files have a new angle on it because they give you an awful lot more inside detail drawn together by the cabinet secretaries. Yeah, there's also isn't there a, a review of SIS that was undertaken? Yes, the, in this the review as well? of SIS in 1952 by Sir Horace Seymour, which has not been released before, so that's his report plus all the supporting papers leading up to it. You know, these intelligence organisational files don't look very exciting, but actually they are hugely significant because they really chart the way that British intelligence is going to move forward, just as there are also papers about the 1952 review of the Atlee Doctrine on the security service, which of course uh, Chris knows about as well. So these kind of things, if you're interested in intelligence, they really do um, shed some new light on the subject. Thank you. We'll be drawing to the end of this uh, discussion. Is there any final words you'd like to say on how you see this collection of material in relation to other releases at the National Archive? The the biggest lesson to be learnt from all this is just not possible to write British history, um, particularly but not exclusively in the 20th century, without um, having a look at uh, the use of intelligence. Time after time, we get biographies, often very good biographies, of British Prime Ministers would do not look at what intelligence they were receiving and how well they were using it. And every release of this kind that comes out offers wonderful opportunities, I think, for graduate students to fill in bits of British history that many of their lecturers have not. (laughs) Well, I think as an intelligence historian, (laughs) you'd not be surprised to hear that I agree entirely with my friend here. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you both. It was a wonderful discussion. Thank you. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives, rights reserved. It is available for reuse under the terms of the Open Government Licence.